Tonight's scripture reading is from Jonah 3, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 5. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well? to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you're here to worship on this holiday weekend. As you just heard me read, we are continuing in our series in the book of Jonah. And here at Grace, we are not really a church that um, takes a break from our sermon series and preaches a topical sermon on like Father's Day, 10 ways to be a good dad, or Mother's Day, 10 ways to be a good mom, or Fourth of July, let's preach about how to be good citizens of our country. We're not really a a church that does that, but sometimes God aligns things well, and Brooks thinks he's funny. And so um, it so lines up that uh, we are talking about what the scripture talks about that we're coming to in the book of Jonah. And so tonight we are talking about how to love your country and worship your God. And we're going to take a look at really how Jonah got that wrong. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started tonight? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you uh, line things up through your supernatural provision, but also uh, the wisdom that you give men. God, I I thank you for this opportunity, and we just say to you, God, that we want to hear from you. We thank you that your word is good and powerful, and it's full of truth. God, we pray that your word would do what you've set out for it to do, God, you say that your word can even divide the intentions of our heart, and we pray that it would do that tonight. God, I pray that none of us, including this preacher, could come away from tonight feeling good about ourselves, but we would come away just being in awe, Jesus, in what you have done for us. Thank you for bringing each one here tonight, and we pray that you would speak to each one of us individually. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting at the end of chapter 3, which we ended on last week, and it sets up a nice recap of what happened in Jonah chapter 3. We read in Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, meaning the Ninevites, how they had turned from their evil way, God relented or turned from the disaster that he had said he would do, and he did not do it. So Jonah chapter 3, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of action that took place in Jonah chapter 3. But to recap, just like God did in Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 3, God tells Jonah to go and preach his word, what he would have him say to the Ninevites. But instead of going in the opposite direction this time in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah obeys God 
and goes to the Ninevites. And he speaks what the Lord tells him to speak. He, we get a little summary of the sermon he gave, which he really focused on how the, that if they did not change from their ways, that God would turn over or turn upside down their city and their way of life. Then we read that the Ninevites believed God. They believed the word of the Lord. And they turned themselves upside down. They changed their ways. So from the the greatest to the least, from the king to even the cattle in the field, they lament of their sin. They lament of their wickedness. They lament of their violence. And it says they turn themselves over. They, They believe God's word. And so here in verse 10, we read that God saw that and he turned from the evil that he was going to do against them because they turned away from their violence. So in recap, Jonah finally does the right thing and obeys God. God uses his subpar sermon to really overturn a whole city. The Ninevites from the king all the way down to the beasts of the field lament. God relents of his disaster that he was going to bring upon the Ninevites. But look with me at chapter 4. It starts with the word, but. This should be our sign that something is not going to go well and possibly Jonah may be up to no good again. We read in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Now, I took one year of Hebrew and one year of Hebrew is just enough Hebrew to be dangerous and to think you know what you're talking about, but you don't really know what you're talking about. But I know enough Hebrew and I read the commentaries enough to know that they consistently agree that the English translation of this verse is wrong. Because when you look at the Hebrew, it reads this way. But it displeased Jonah, this great evil this evil, and it made him angry. Jonah considered it to be a great evil that God saved the Ninevites. He was not just uncomfortable with the Ninevites turning themselves over and believing the word of God. He thought it was evil, a great evil. That's how he feels about this. He is indignant. He is indignant that God would save these Ninevites who were not God's people, who were violent people, who were especially violent against the people of God. In this, we see a great contrast between God's response to man's repentance and Jonah's response to his enemy's repentance. God rejoices in the repentance of mankind. Not only so, but the same language is used for God as was used for the Ninevites. God turned away from his plan. He changed his plan in order to not pour out his wrath against the Ninevites. But Jonah here, once again, turns to anger. And even says what God is doing is evil. Why? Why is he so angry? Look with me at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Wow. Wow. That's not in the Hebrew. That's my commentary. Wow. 
Jonah's response is, didn't you hear me the first time? Did, did you hear? This, this is what I was, con- he's being sarcastic with his creator. Being sarcastic in a joking way is kind of funny. Being sarcastic in the context of an intimate relationship can not necessarily go well for you and is not necessarily the nicest way to communicate. Here, in his anger, Jonah replies with sarcasm and a rhetorical question to the God who made him. Is this not what I said? He basically is saying, God, this is what I was afraid of. This is exactly why I didn't want to go to the Ninevites. Because I knew you were gracious, I knew you would save them, and my enemies would now be considered in your kingdom. That's why I'm angry, and that's why I think this is evil. As we continue on in verse 2, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, to go in the opposite direction. For I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah was a good Jew. He knew who God was. He, in fact, uses God's very words. God calls himself these things in the Old Testament. This is a composite of what God says about his own nature. And here, Jonah is saying, I knew that was who you were. I know the testimonies of my people. I know that for generations you have been compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you would do this, and now you have, and I am exceedingly angry at this great evil. Jonah is angry because he would rather die than see his enemies saved. He would rather die than die at the hands of his enemies who are now in the kingdom. Jonah is angry because God is not fitting into his preconceived notions of who God should be. Verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? I didn't think of this until right now, but... Isn't it interesting that here the Lord asks Jonah a question in a very similar fashion as Jesus asks in the New Testament? I think this is exactly what Jesus would say if he came face to face with Jonah. And in a way, not to get messy with our Trinitarian theology, but in a way he is here. God is saying, do you do well to be angry? How's your anger working out for you? And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Is this really bringing about the ease and the comfort that you want? The safety that you want? The freedom that you want? The righteousness that you think you have? Do you do well to be angry? Then Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah is doing two things here. He is pouting in his anger. He does not want to continue the dialogue with his creator. But he then goes and makes a booth for himself. He makes a shelter for himself to sit and watch. Today my family went 
to the Coralville Parade. And the Coralville Parade is quite a parade, and there's lots of people that go to it. And we are uh, fortunate enough to live close enough to the Coralville Parade that we can walk there from our house. But we drove through this morning, the parade was at 12, but we drove through this morning and we saw that people were already starting to put their lawn chairs out in the shady spots. And we knew that it was going to get warm today. So we went back to the house and we loaded up the lawn chairs and our blankets and we went and we reserved our spot because we wanted to make sure we were in the shade, we had a front row seat, so we could catch the candy. I mean, see the parade. We wanted to be right there, right in the front, ready to go. Jonah is pouting, but he is also setting up shop, setting up some shade so he can have a good view because he still hopes that God is going to bring disaster upon his enemies. Look at the anger and the hardness of heart that Jonah has experienced. After all God has done for him, all God has done through him, and all God has done to save the Ninevites. In this book of Jonah, we see an incredible picture of the loving mercy and grace of our Heavenly Father to save those that hate him and hate the people that he has created. Yet Jonah is still angry. It could be said that Jonah is the most successful prophet ever. Here's one of the ironies of Jonah. Jonah preaches this subpart sermon, and obviously his own heart is not where it needs to be. He is not preaching out of a place of love for the Ninevites, yet God does use his words to overturn Nineveh. Most prophets, if you read the Old Testament, did what God said, obeyed God, but often it didn't work. And those prophets are honored, even though God's people didn't listen to them, they did what they were told, even to extreme lengths, as we talked about at the beginning of this service. But here, Jonah is successful. But we're left at the end of the book of Jonah, not knowing if Jonah ever repented of his anger and repented of his sin. Why is Jonah so angry? We'll talk more about his anger specifically next week. We're going to do a whole sermon next week just on anger and why Jonah was so angry and the the components of anger. We're not going to totally go into that today. But ultimately, Jonah is angry because he was right. Because God was going to save and he didn't like the Ninevites coming in to the kingdom. His greatest fear had come to pass. He questions if God can really be just and holy and good if he would save violent people like the Ninevites. He doesn't want to share the good news of the kingdom with sinners like them. He is coming at things with a preconceived notion that the Jews are the good people. They're the chosen people. They're the ones that are in the kingdom by birth. He doesn't want to believe that people that have been against God for generations and have hated and done violence against God's people could be welcomed into the kingdom. God is not fitting in his box and the boxes that he has made for other people. 
Ultimately, and this is what we're going to spend the rest of our night talking about it, the commentators on the book of Jonah are 100% in agreement on one thing from the book of Jonah. I read multiple commentaries. I talked to the other preachers and the commentaries they read. Uh, in these commentaries, if you've re ever read a Bible commentary, they reference like 40 other commentaries as they're writing their commentary. And in every single reference, cross-reference, footnote, the commentators disagree on if there was really a big fish, how long was Jonah in the fish? How far away was Nineveh? Who were the Ninevites? Was Jonah real or was he not real? They disagree on all of those things, but every single one of them diagnose the same root sin for Jonah. That sin is an ethnocentric nationalism that caused him to hate anyone that was not Jewish. Clearly, it's a fitting day for us to talk about how love of country is good. That's called patriotism. In just a moment, we're going to talk about how we're called to pray for our country. We're called to be good citizens of the country we are from and this, the country we live in. And love of country is good and called patriotism, but making an idol out of our country is bad. This is ethnocentric nationalism and leads to great idolatry and great sin. So um, the next couple of weeks, we're going to conclude the book of Jonah. But um, as the Lord led, as I was putting this sermon together, we, as we talk about how Jonah made his country out to be an idol or his people out to be an idol, we are going to take a quick review of the book of Jonah to show what happens when we make our country an idol. What happens when we make our country an idol? Eight things that happen when we make our country an idol from the book of Jonah. First, we fear. We fear. Jonah was afraid. He was afraid what would happen if the Ninevites were saved. He was afraid for his own safety. He was afraid of his nice, tight, and tidy theology. He was afraid of a God he could not understand that would save people like that. What if God starts saving violent people into the kingdom? What will become of the kingdom? What will become of the Jews? Fear. is a major motivating factor in the life of Jonah. He was afraid of the Ninevites. He was afraid of people that didn't look like him. He was afraid of people that didn't act like him. He was afraid of people that didn't previously know the law of God. When we make our country out to be an idol and we worship it instead of our creator, we fear. We fear what will become of our country if things don't go our way. We fear what will become of our country or our way of life if the other party is in office. We fear because we think everything is at stake with our country. So we fear. Second, we run from obedience. Remember from Jonah 1 verse 3, what Jonah said when God told him to go. God appearing to Jonah, speaking his words to Jonah, and Jonah went in the opposite direction. We run from obedience. In fact, often we don't even hear what God would have us do if we are so focused on being safe, so focused on what's good for our country, so focused on maintaining some idea of 
the ideals of our country or the values that we hold dear in our country. We, like Jonah, can run from obedience. We can look at the plain words of Scripture and ignore them because they don't fit our political categories. We can run from just obeying what God's word says because it doesn't fit into our preconceived notions of what America is. We run from obedience like Jonah did. Third, we may even face judgment. We may face judgment. Jonah faced judgment in a number of ways. You can look at this two ways that God, you know, He gave judgment and discipline to Jonah where he kept sparing him time and time again. It's amazing that God does both for Jonah and for us, that he disciplines us because he loves us, but he keeps sparing us out of his long-suffering and gracious love for us. But we can face judgment if our love for country becomes idolatry. When we look in the book of Revelation, we see churches that have lost their witness and lost their testimony because they lose sight of their Savior. God judges them and takes away their lampstand because they've lost sight of doing what God has called them to do. Number four, we might even deny our faith. Look at Jonah 1.16. I think it's up on the screen, um, possibly. Maybe I didn't put it up on the screen. You can look with me at Jonah 1.16 in your Bibles. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In Jonah 1.16, we see the men on the boat, who we have no evidence that they know God, obeying God and acting as if there is a God when Jonah is not. We might even deny our faith to save our own skin or to stay comfortable or to continue to do life or church in the ways that we want to. We might even deny our faith if our country is an idol. Number five, we continue to make idols. From the belly of the fish, we see Jonah say something correct. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. One idol tends to lead to other idols, and we have to keep making idols. If we make our country an idol and we worship our country and think it will provide our safety, it will provide our protection, if we think our country is the hope for the kingdom of God, then we will make more idols. And we can do it on both sides of the political aisle and all in between. So if we make our country an idol, we can start to idolize freedoms that God has given and are good, but they can become an idol. Or we idolize some sense or some, um, our own definition of what justice looks like. We can start to idolize the values that we say we hold dear. And we just make more idols that we start worshiping and pretty soon... We are no longer defined as people of the kingdom and people of good news and people that obey Jesus. We start being known by our values. Number six, when we make our country an idol, we don't love well. It makes it very hard to love well the people around you when you make your country out to be an idol. 
when this is taken to its extreme, people coming in from other countries become a threat. Our nation becomes then the hope of the world and even the hope of the kingdom. Everything becomes about us and protecting what we have and not letting others in. If we think our side is good and everyone else is bad, then we will not be able to love people well. Number seven, we lose sight of God. We saw right here in Jonah chapter four, Jonah being displeased greatly and even thinking that it is evil that God saved the Ninevites. He sees a miraculous work of God and he sees it as evil because he has lost sight of God and what God is doing. Jonah, if he's a good Jew, should know all these things that he says that God is about the character of God, but he should also know from the beginning that God is looking to redeem some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. He should know that. But he's lost sight of God. He's lost sight of the mission. He's lost sight of what the people of God are for to begin with. Number eight, we don't see our own sin and our own idols. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, when the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? Jonah couldn't even see his own sin. He couldn't see how angry he is. He was just driven more and more and more into anger and idolatry. And this is what can happen when we make our country out to be an idol. So what's the problem with making our country out to be an idol? There's two costs. The first one is a personal cost. There's a personal cost to making our country out to be an idol because pretty soon we are no longer living for the kingdom of God but the kingdom of self. And as Paul Tripp says, when we sin and we worry about the kingdom of self, we shrink God's kingdom down into a man-made size kingdom that is no bigger than the confines of our own heart. There's a personal cost when our love for freedom usurps our desire to do what God has called us to do for the kingdom, and then our freedom can actually enslave us. Jonah was enslaved to his anger. He was enslaved to his idolatry. He was enslaved to, to his love for the Jewish people. He did not find the freedom, the ease, the comfort, or the safety that he was looking for in his idolatry, and neither do we. We'll talk more about that in just a moment as we talk more about idolatry. Secondly, there's a mission cost. If God is trying to save some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, but we are suspicious of those who do not look like us or even uncomfortable with those who do not look like us or do not share our politics, then we can't be a part of building the kingdom. To put a real-life example, let's say that my wife befriends someone and they become very close friends. And in fact, they become such close friends that this friend ends up spending lots of time with our family. And they end up sharing meals with us. They even spend the night sometimes. They have become as close as a sister to my wife. But there's only one problem. I hate them. Do you think that this relationship, this situation can coexist? 
No, there's going to be strife in our home and strife in our marriage and strife between all three of us, right? If God is welcoming in and pursuing those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, but we are uncomfortable with people that do not look like us, we are not going to be able to participate in God's kingdom work. If we are the bride of Christ, but we don't love the people that he loves, then not only are those on the margins not going to feel welcome in our life, pretty soon Jesus is not going to be welcome in our life as well. Look at scripture at how often God's people are held accountable for not loving the people that he loves. So, How do we love our country and worship our God? Let's get to the practicals of what we can do, how we can apply what we're learning here. How do we love our country and worship our God? First, thank God and pray for your country and your city. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are called to pray for our country. We are called to pray for our leaders. We are called to pray for our president, whether we voted for him or not, whether we like him or not. Same goes for local officials as well. So we need to thank God. We need to thank God for anything we see in our country that we think matches the kingdom. We need to thank God for the freedoms that we do have. We need to pray for our country where we see things that do not line up for God's country. How much time this year have you spent thinking about politics? And how much time have you spent praying for politicians? It is not entirely clear how Christians are to vote, but we are commanded to pray for our president. That should convict and humble every single one of us. I love our country, and I love our city. I love the city of Iowa City. I just love it. As I drive through it, as I walk through it, as I work here, as I have fun here, I love the city of Iowa City. I love so many things about it. I love that it is diverse as it is. I love that it's as eclectic that it is. I love that we have Jazz Fest and Art Fest and Soul Fest and all these fests. I'm so glad that we have so many of the things that we have here. And in many ways, it is the ideal place for me, a city boy, and my wife, a country girl, to raise a family. I love this city. I see the sin in our city. I see the idolatry in our city. I see the enslavement in our city. But I love our city. We should feel the same about our country. We should have a love for country and be thankful for our country while also seeing what's wrong with it and praying and working against the forces of darkness. So first, thank God and pray for our country and our city. Second, we need to repent of our idols 
wherever we see them. Repent of your idols wherever you see them. We need to make sure that before we're talking about what's wrong in the culture, we see what's wrong in our own hearts. This is the mistake that Jonah made. He missed the anger and the idolatry and the ethnocentric, nationalistic hate that he had for others. He missed that. He was so busy saying, God, do you see the Ninevites' idols? Do you see them? Do you see how violent they are? Do you see how they hate you? Do you see they probably have literal idols? Do you see that? And God's like, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah goes and pouts and assumes that God will eventually bring disaster upon them because of all their idols. Don't miss the idols in your own heart. Often our partisan politics, our political categories, our ethnocentric idolatry do not allow us to see the fault in ourself or in our side or in our party. It turns out that making your country your idol or your God makes for a terrible God that does not provide the freedom you think it does. And neither do our politics, our favorite theologies. Ultimately, Jesus is the only Lord that says, serve me because I first served you. Our idols say to us, I will give you everything. They take everything and then we receive nothing. Our idols offer freedom, but what they deliver is enslavement. When Jesus says, come, follow me, take up your cross and follow me, he says, whoever thinks he has found life loses it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find true life. Our idols lie to us. Jesus is the one that provides freedom. Jesus and what he has done for us provide the deliverance. So we can look our own idols and our own sin and our own anger and our own racism and our own hate in the face and call it what it is because Jesus died for it. Jesus knows it's there. The people around you probably know it's there. We can just repent of it and receive grace today. Then number three, we need to call out the idols wherever we see them. Folks, we are just so bad about this. I don't know if it's just our country or other countries or if it's just in the realm of politics, but we are so bad at calling out our side, whether it's politics or whatever, for our idolatry and the ways that we are wrong. Do a social experiment this week. I hope you have a lot of time on your hands and a lot of patience. Say something that one of the political parties is doing wrong and how it's not according to the kingdom of God and watch your comments blow up. I've stopped posting about politics on social media because I don't have enough time on my hands and I'm not patient enough to deal with things. I need to have those conversations in some other format, Brooks keeps telling me. But if you post anything that one side or the other, or God forbid you talk about a third party, there's another social experiment. Talk about third parties or libertarians on social media and see what happens, then everyone will hate you. Try posting something that says, 
what this side is doing wrong or this side is doing wrong or post on Tuesday that the Republicans are wrong and then post on Thursday something that the Republicans did right or vice versa and see what happens. The comments and the private messages that I get when I call out one side or the other from the other side, they think I've lost my mind. You can't pick on our side. You can't call out our team. Folks, from cover to cover, God's people and God in the flesh, Jesus, call out whatever is not according to the kingdom of God. John the Baptist got his head cut off for it. Jesus ultimately got put on a cross for it. The disciples got martyred for it. And God's people continue to die every single day for calling out the idols in their culture and boldly proclaiming the word of God. We are beholden to no one but Jesus. So we need to call out the idols wherever we see them. If it's the guy or the gal you voted for in office or not. Whether it's the political side you belong to or not. We need to call out the idols and the things that are unjust and the things that are not according to the kingdom of God. Lastly, and this is going to get very practical, we need to build bigger tables. We need to have a life of hospitality that welcomes in the alien and the stranger among us. Old Testament, Jesus' teachings, New Testament, the new kingdom as described in Revelation continues to tell God's people to welcome in the stranger. The definition for stranger in the Bible is someone you don't know. Someone you don't know. And the number one reason you wouldn't have known them in Bible times is they didn't speak your language or they didn't look like you. We need to literally possibly build bigger tables, but we definitely metaphorically need to open up our lives to more people who may not look like you, vote like you, talk like you, think like you. Hopefully, you're not sitting here today and you are a blatant racist. And I fear that at the end of a message like this, there's something in our sinful hearts that say, I'm sure glad those other people heard that sermon. But all of us need to consider, are we about the kingdom of God, or are we about our own comfort? A huge thing that made, makes it very challenging for non-whites to feel part of a majority white church is the preferences of the people in the majority. Every group of people that I have been a part of in the church, as our church has grown, as a ministry grows, as a small group grows, there is a segment of people that says, I wish things could be like they used to be when I knew everyone. It's going to happen here at Grace Downtown. 
because I believe that God is saving some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. I am praying that God would save at least one from all 106 nations represented at the University of Iowa. And we hope as one church in two locations to see a thousand people come to Christ in the next five years. And as that happens, there will be people that are saved that do not speak your language, do not look like you, do not worship the way that you do, do not vote the way that you do, and we are called to be brothers and sisters in Christ and set our preferences aside. Though we may not be guilty of blatant racism, ethnocentricism, nationalism, We are all guilty of putting our preferences and our ease and our comfort and our safety above simple obedience to the clear command and call of God. Jonah had lost sight of the kingdom of God and he had lost sight of what true joy and freedom looks like. Theologian Rosemary Nixon says that only through attempting to create the good life for all nations and people can we find what we are looking for. If we don't, then divisions and fear will remain. I'll paraphrase. She said it plenty well, but it's kind of wordy. I'll paraphrase what she is saying. Our view of the kingdom expands and God's kingdom becomes more and more beautiful to us as we see more and more people jump in. As we see more and more people come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, our view of God and his kingdom continue to grow. Jonah was guilty of idolatry and anger that kept him from being a part of what God wanted to do in his world. I'd like us to conclude tonight by considering what is in our own heart. What is keeping our own heart from seeing the kingdom of God come and participate in what he is trying to do in our world? This week, you can expect in your email inbox another devotional written by Uh, one of our friends from Grace Downtown. Uh, This week you'll receive a devotional from uh, Justin Bonzato, and he has some incredible reflections about serving in the U.S. military um, before he came to Christ and after he came to Christ and how it changed his view of things. So you can look forward to that as we continue to reflect on this and ask God to speak to each one of us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's timely. Thank you that it's powerful. And God, I pray that your word would continue to work in us to help us to be good citizens of this country that you have put us in, either being native-born here or as someone who has moved here, God. Thank you for knowing the exact times and places where we should live. And God, your word in Acts 17 says that you have set the exact times and places where we should live so that we would reach out and we would find you. And God, we want to know you. We want to be a part of your good news. We want to be a part of your kingdom come. And as you appoint the times and the places where people will live here in Iowa City, whether for short term or long term, we want to welcome them 
to our tables. We want to welcome them to our lives. We want to welcome them to our church. And we want to demonstrate and declare the good news of who you are, Jesus, because you are good. And God, what you have done for us is such good news that you would save idolatrous, violent, angry people like us. God, may we extend your offer of life and freedom and joy to others. God, if there is any sinful, unbelieving, hateful part of our heart and our flesh, we pray that you would rid us of those things. God, even show us where our preferences and our ease and our comfort and our safety are getting in the way of what you want to do in our hearts and in our lives. We pray that you'd continue to speak to us. Though the sermon and the church service may be ending, God, we thank you that through your spirit, through creation itself, through your word and through your people, you continue to speak to us. May you find us with a posture that says, Lord, speak for your servant is listening. In Jesus' name, amen.